you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Before beginning this week's episode, I suppose I should mention a few things. The story is really inherently political, and while I'd like to try to keep the politics out of things, or at least to a bare minimum, there's really no way to both tell this story and leave politics out of it. Not only that, but the exact issues and events are really quite similar to things that have taken place in the real world recently. Basically, I just want to say I'm not trying to start any arguments here or anything. I may as well also use this opportunity to issue a similar statement for a few other upcoming episodes, but we'll deal with that when when we get here. But at any rate, this is episode 91, The Kel Ayers Massacre. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Small-town politics can be just as cutthroat as their quote-unquote bigger analogs. Maybe even more so, when you factor in the idea that in a smaller region, it's easier for one person to completely dominate. Klein Township, in the northeast corner of Schuylkill County in Pennsylvania, was no exception to this general rule. Frank Bruno had come to the United States sometime in the 19th century from Calabria, Italy. He made the trek from New York to Klein Township, to work construction on the Lehigh Valley Railroad, and later to become employed in the Honeybrook coal mines. After only three years, Bruno had risen through the ranks of the miners to become a foreman and soon branched out to become director of the local school board as well. In fact, it was Frank Bruno who renamed the village of Honeybrook as Kellairs, supposedly after two Irish railroad workers he roomed with upon his arrival in the area, whose surnames were Kelly and Ayers. In 1899, he was appointed postmaster of Kellairs, chairman of the local branch of the Republican Party, and by 1904, he owned a grocery store and cigar factory as well. He also served as a notary. The four other Bruno brothers had emigrated to the United States at the same time as Frank. All four had similar stories, beginning as manual laborers and later establishing themselves as business owners and politicians. James Bruno owned a bottling plant, his brother Anthony a hotel, Lewis was a teacher at the school run by his brother, and Peter was a fireman, eventually doubling as a justice of the peace. The Brunos were quite a prominent family, and their influence extended to the next generation. In fact, they almost amounted to royalty in the small mining town. I should probably explain a bit how things work so you can understand how important the Brunos, particularly Frank, 
and later his nephew Joe, actually were. In most regions throughout the United States, school teachers could be anybody, really. They were just hired by the local school board. In some areas, however, Calares for one, the school teachers were appointed rather than hired, appointed by the school director. This meant that Frank Bruno exerted a great deal of influence over the education of the town's children, and also made Lewis's position as school teacher due to nepotism since he was appointed by his brother. Frank Bruno eventually retired. James's son, Joe, eventually followed in his footsteps as school director. He appointed his cousin, also named Lewis, as principal. Joe's ambitions went even further than the schools, however, and soon enough he had become a justice of the peace, county detective, bank director, and landlord, as well as run the local garage. He also, like his uncle in another sense, became the chairman of the local Republican committee. In a very real sense, he essentially ran the town. An account of the later events written by Joseph Condor of Kellers hyperbolically wrote of the state of affairs in the town. If you voted, and favored especially with a batch of votes, you were permitted to exist in the town. Woe to the free thinker, his poor body was abused with beatings, threats, and almost lynchings. Politics was not their only aim. They competed in undersold businessmen of all types. The year 1908 found them prosperous in saloon business, blackberry buying, pool rooms, slot machines, and bootlegging liquor. Condor also observes in his account that the Brunos achieved their dominion over the town, and indeed much of the county, by the acquiescence of the people. But by the 1920s, another family had come into the prominence in the town as well. The McAloose family was in a very real sense the opposite of the Brunos. They came to dominate the local Democratic Party, much the same manner as the Brunos had the Republicans. Although the name is spelled M-C-A-L-O-O-S-E in the manner of an Irish surname, in actuality they were an Italian family, the name originally having been Macaluso. In fact, the home of Dan Macaluso, the head of the family, was on 3rd Street only a block away from Joe Bruno's house. Even if, as Condor observed, Bruno's domineering status over the town of Calares was due to the fact that he had been voted in, his description quoted above of exactly how both he and his relatives had been voted in should make it plainly clear that his status in town was resented as well. The Great Depression in 1929, however, meant that the poorest residents of the town became even more so, at the same time that money, though not so much as it had been, to be fair, continued to roll into Joe Bruno's coffers. Resentment began to build. Several notable supporters of Bruno and the Republicans switched allegiance to the Macaluses and the Democrats. In 1931, Governor Pinchot put an end to the Coal and Iron Police, which had been notorious for its brutality in squashing labor disputes. This was seen as a triumph for workers' rights and a Democratic victory. In 1932, the school in town burnt down. Joe Bruno had a new building built, which was opened in 1933. It was christened the Bruno School. This year, as it turned out, was a high watermark for tensions. In this year, there were two defining events. First, Franklin Delano Roosevelt took office as president. By the time he took office, a quarter of all workers in the United States were unemployed. The Democratic president had campaigned on promises of an end to the Depression, 
or at least an amelioration of it. He swiftly passed the New Deal, which put thousands back into work. The second was the repeal of Prohibition, which had been another of Roosevelt's campaign promises. The momentum thus gained by the Democrats and the McAloose family eroded the influence of the Brunos still further. There was also a local election in 1933 in which several municipal offices, most held by Brunos or Bruno supporters, were up for grabs. Scores of formerly Republican voters switched to Democrat voters in the election, which in a town the size of Calaire's would have a huge impact. As the votes were counted, it certainly appeared that the Democrats had prevailed. But Joe Bruno took a drastic step and confiscated the ballot box before votes could be accurately counted. Some days later, he returned it, and it turned out that the Brunos had won after all. The Democrats contested the results, pointing to a number of ballots which had been tampered with. But Judge R.P. Hicks refused to hear it and ruled that the count still stood, which meant that the Republicans kept their positions. Fist fights between the two sides broke out when time came for school to be back in session, and one teacher received a broken arm in the chaos. The next year, the votes would again be examined, and as should surprise no one, the ballots had been tampered with, and the Democrats actually had won. Between what was seen by some as the audacity of naming the school after himself, the success of the New Deal, and a contentious election, tensions had reached the boiling points on both sides. The Democrats felt that Bruno's days were numbered. The election may have gone to him, but momentum was on their side, and there was an even bigger election coming up, one for state offices above Joe Bruno, the ones that could likely squash his plans. The Brunos weren't stupid, and I'm certain they saw the direction things were headed, and realized that their power and influence might be taking its last gasps. So we come to the election of 1934. This election would determine the governor, the attorney general, the people who, as I said, could severely put a limit on Bruno's influence. It doesn't seem that there had been any interference by the Brunos this time around. While the state Republican committee seemed confident that they would win the election, Joe Bruno wasn't as confident about Klein Township. Some said that he had been making threats and talking in a way which made it seem as though he might go down swinging. Literally. So we come to the night of November 5th, 1934, election night. At this time, voting machines weren't seeing widespread use. Most jurisdictions were still using paper ballots. This is the reason that Joe Bruno's vote tampering the year before had been so easy. While the results of most, most Pennsylvania votes were, were inconclusive as of yet, the results of many races across the country were already known. The Democrats were nationally making good progress, so although the results weren't yet known, the McAlooses and the Democratic machinery in Calaires were confident they would prevail. Both sides already having held election night rallies, at around 8 o'clock, a 13-year-old boy named James Dolan later said that Antoinette Billig, one of Joe Bruno's daughters, and several others got in a car and took off at high speed toward the Democratic campaign headquarters. When Dolan and a few other kids ran after the car, yelling that the Democrats were going to win, someone, who exactly isn't known, fired three shots at them, upon which Dolan and the others, wisely, abandoned their pursuit of the car. A woman who was at the campaign headquarters also testified to having heard the gunshots. 
But this wasn't yet known when at least some of the Democrats decided to hold a parade in celebration of their prospective victory. A parade which departed from the home of Nicholas Perna at about 9 o'clock that evening. Some rode in the back of pickup trucks, but most were on foot, bearing lanterns. They were to march up Center Street and then turn south down 4th Street. This route was undoubtedly specifically chosen because it led directly past the home of Joe Bruno. It is at this moment that the crux of the story takes place. Who exactly fired the first shots is unclear. Although the Brunos were to later claim it was the Democrats who threw rocks and shot at the house first, every witness aside from the Brunos confirmed that it was one of them who fired first. Which one was unclear. Some said it was Tony Orlando, grandson of Anthony Bruno, who fired first. Others said it was Joe's son, James Bruno, who stood in the yard of his house. Some said there was a sniper somewhere on Center Street who fired at the paraders before they even made the turn. What is known is that there were several shooters. Adolph Payer, who ran a butcher shop in the Marco building, marked on the map I'm posting, said that shots came from a side window on the Center Street side of Joe Bruno's house. Other witnesses said shots were coming from the front window of the house, facing the Immaculate Conception Church. Frank Fiorella, who was near the Marco building, was the first fatality. The 68-year-old man was shot in the head, struck by pellets from a 20-gauge shotgun. 26-year-old John Goloski from McAdoo ran to help Fiorella, who unbeknownst to him was already dead. On his way, he was shot in the back and stomach more than a dozen times. He, too, fell dead. The crowd, understandably, scattered. Several people took refuge under the steps of the Immaculate Conception Church. 37-year-old Andrew Custician, who hadn't been taking part in the parade, ran towards the intersection since his 9-year-old daughter Evelyn had been taking part. On the way, he was shot in the abdomen. His spleen was ruptured and he fell to the ground gravely wounded. He died the next day. Another 37-year-old, Dominic Perna, had the misfortune to be standing near a streetlight. He was made an easy target for a number of shotgun rounds, which riddled his chest and stomach. He died instantly. Two teenage girls, Lucy and Angelina Palumbo, running in the direction of Dan McAloose's house, were shot in the legs. Several other women, including a 21-year-old schoolteacher named Irene Condor, sister of the Joseph Condor quoted earlier, and Sarah Colomino, the daughter of Frank Fiorella, were also shot and wounded. I believe the woman interviewed toward the end of the YouTube video linked in the description, a newsreel report of the events, is either Irene or Sarah. Also shown in the video, I believe, is Edward Vespucci, who though shot in the head managed to survive, though the bullet could not be removed. Also wounded was John Saladego, owner of the drugstore on the corner. At one point, the gunshot slowed and some of the people under the church stairs emerged. One of these was William Fork, who was checking on the wounded when he received a shotgun blast to the stomach, causing terrible injuries, but he survived for a little while, dying later that night. Also emerging was Mary Dvorak, who was running away when she was shot in the foot. The police arrived shortly, probably not even having to be called. The town is small enough that the gunshots were likely able to be heard no matter where in town you were. Blood and spent casings, as well as a bullet-riddled American flag that had been carried in the parade, lay in the street. 
It was said that so fierce was the shooting that even bystanders, people who weren't even wounded, had been covered in so much blood that police at first had trouble discerning who was shot and who wasn't. There had been so many individual gunshots that it was oftentimes reported as machine gun fire in early accounts. Bullet holes riddled the walls and windows of nearly every nearby building. When the police made their way into the Bruno house, they arrested everyone there, a full twelve people. Upstairs, in the bedroom from which most of the gunfire came, they found twelve guns. More were discovered elsewhere in the house, and huge stockpiles of ammunition were found. Dynamite was also found in the house. In the apartment of Paul Bruno, above the Saladego drugstore, more guns were found, among them a 20-gauge shotgun thought to be the weapon that killed Frank Fiorella. Arrested were Joe Bruno, his wife Cecilia, their children Elvita, Alfred, and James, Paul Bruno, Phil Bruno, Phil's son Arthur, a bus driver named Peter Russo, and three school teachers, Julia Lesko, Eva Soccer, and Cecilia Straka. Tony Orlando was also later arrested, bringing the total to 13. All were taken to the Schuylkill County Prison in Pottsville. The next day, the election results were finalized, and the winners were the Democrats by a huge margin, 662 to just 24. But the people of Calares weren't in the mood for celebration now that Joe Bruno had been finally ousted from the town. They had bloody streets to clean up and five bodies to bury. The story became nationally known. Efforts were made, of course, to spin the narrative of exactly what had happened. Democrats seized on the idea of it being a purely political massacre. The Republicans, meanwhile, spun it as being the result of a feud between Italian and Eastern European immigrants, apparently overlooking the fact that three of the five dead were ethnically Italian. Joe, Phil, Paul, James, and Arthur Bruno, as well as Tony Orlando, were charged with five counts of murder. Taking office after the election were a new governor, George Earl, a new attorney general and Charles Margiotti, and a number of senators, Earl, Margiotti, Senator Joseph Guffey, and others served as pallbearers in the funerals for the five victims. The funerals were held at the Immaculate Conception Church, in front of which the massacre had happened. The funeral procession was massive, and such was the notoriety of the event nationwide that it was said that 10,000 people lined the streets. Not a bad turnout for a town that, even today, has only 500 residents. Andrew Kostishian and, J- and John Goloski were buried in nearby Lofty. Meanwhile, in the Schuylkill County prison in Pottsville, the Brunos assumed a notoriety almost akin to what they enjoyed in Kellers. Joe Bruno, along with a convicted car thief named Sammy Stramara, cultivated a reputation of deference among the other prisoners and, apparently, even guards, and for all intents and purposes, he ran the jail. The other Brunos assumed different positions in the prison. Prisoners later recalled how the 9 o'clock curfew for inmates to be back in their cells apparently didn't apply to Joe Bruno, and how his cell was only very rarely locked, and even then, only when he specifically asked for it to be. Such was their easy lifestyle in the House of Corrections that for a time a nickname for the prison was the Bruno Hotel. The trials of the Brunos began on January 5, 1934. Judge Cyrus Palmer presided over the trial. 
Albert Thomas from the district attorney's office handled the prosecution, and John Stevens was the Bruno's defense counsel. On January 14th, after testimony from various police officers about the events of the day, among them Louis Buono and John Ferns, both of whom also investigated the shooting death of Susan Mummy some months before, as discussed way back in episode 9, came testimony from the public. 27-year-old resident of McAdoo, Mary Crenn Savage, said that she and her son were near the Immaculate Conception Church when she saw a series of gunshots coming from the home of Joe Bruno, although she could not tell who, exactly, had fired them. She could, however, much more clearly see that James Bruno and Tony Orlando were definitely firing on the crowd. Crenn Savage's testimony was more or less backed up by State Trooper Morgan Davis, who found both 45 caliber and 25 caliber shells lying on the ground approximately where she placed Orlando and Bruno. Later questioned was a McAdoo Heights resident named Samuel Mascarelli. His testimony served to connect Joe Bruno directly to at least the shooting, if not necessarily any of the murders as was hoped. I was in a machine, and as I passed, I saw Joe Bruno kneeling with a gun on the windowsill at the middle bedroom facing Center Street, Mascarelli said. As I drove past and turned south on 4th Street, I saw the people starting to run away from Joe Bruno's home. I stopped the car near the end of James Bruno's home, and I went north on 4th Street. I don't know where the people got to, but some were standing in the street. I looked up at the window where I had previously seen Joe Bruno, and I saw three or four shots come from that window. I saw one fellow fall or sit down near a pole. I don't know who he was, but someone said it was Dominic Perna. I saw a man fall on the pavement on 4th Street. I went around north of the Marco home and saw a man lying there where they had carried him, and he looked as if he was dead. They told me he was Frank Fiorella. Then I heard another man cry. I'm shot, and I knew him at once. He was John Goloski, and again he said, I'm shot, and he started to walk away. Under cross-examination by John Stevens, Mascarelli clarified that he did not hear anyone in the parade jeering at the Bruno house, or throwing rocks, or shooting at the house, all claims made by the Brunos. He also said that at the time he was present, he didn't see James Bruno or Tony Orlando. Another witness was an Italian woman named Jenny Tortonesi. As she told the story of the events of the day, she directly addressed Joe Bruno. Shame on you, Joe Bruno. What do you want to do, kill all those poor people? She said. Through her testimony, the prosecution believed they had also established murder charges against both Joe and Phil Bruno. When one of her answers was interrupted by another of the Bruno's defense team, H.O. Bechtel, Tortonesi replied, When I talk, you better shut up. Later in the trial, when Joe Bruno himself was questioned, he repeated the story of the Democrats assaulting his house before the shootout began and told the court how he himself had called the state police. When Albert Thomas asked him about certain of the guns that had killed the men, Joe denied he owned a gun of that caliber, but freely threw his brother Phil under the bus, saying he owned one. From the assembled spectators in the courtroom, the voice of Jenny Tortonesi yelled at Bruno, saying, Yes, sir, you do, and eventually being removed from the courtroom. On February 7, 1935, the verdict came back, finding Joe Bruno guilty of 
voluntary manslaughter in the case of the murder of Frank Fiorella. No verdict was reached as to the other four deaths. The purpose of this trial was only the death of Frank Fiorella. A number of other trials and appeals were ongoing for months. Trials were finally completed on July 13, 1936, with Joe Bruno convicted of voluntary manslaughter in the case of Frank Fiorella, three counts of second-degree murder in the cases of Andrew Kostitian, Dominic Perna, and John Goloski, and first-degree murder in the case of William Fork. Phil Bruno was convicted on four counts of manslaughter and one count of first-degree murder. James, Alfred, Paul, and Arthur Bruno, as well as Tony Orlando, were all charged with one count of first-degree murder. All were to be moved from the Schoolkill County Prison to Eastern State Penitentiary. Attempts at retrial were denied. On December 17, 1936, Joe Bruno received a visit from his daughter Antoinette, who delivered a great deal of financial paperwork to him. Although this is highly irregular, remember that in prison, Joe Bruno was treated with kid gloves and given privileges that other prisoners didn't get. Later that evening, he informed the warden that he needed to go to the dentist. He never returned to the prison after this. Prison staff was suspicious about a guard named Guy Irving, who didn't report Bruno missing for several hours after it had taken place. Irving had been the one to take Bruno to the dentist, and said the delay in reporting the disappearance was due to the fact that he was searching for the now fugitive. Irving had been only recently hired, and though the, re though the warden had put the name of another prospective guard forward, the county commissioners overruled him and hired Irving instead. Two commissioners, Alvin E. Marr and Philip Erig, were charged with aiding the escape of Joe Bruno, though in the end they were only fined. Guy Irving was fired from the prison and charged, as was Joe's daughter Antoinette, Warden Herbert Gosselin, and Robert Walker. Gosselin and Antoinette were bailed out almost immediately. But by the time the new year rolled around, Joe Bruno hadn't been found yet. Wanted posters were issued and posted all over the country, along with a description of Bruno in almost painstaking detail. Meanwhile, on May 15, 1937, both Guy Irving and Robert Walker were convicted of negligence for their role in Bruno's escape. Warden Gosselin was acquitted. It wasn't until August 22nd of that year that Joe Bruno was finally recaptured. A tip pointed authorities toward New York City, and Detective Louis Buono, along with State Police Superintendent Lynn Adams, went north. Once there, several New York officers accompanied them to the apartment building the tipster had thought Bruno was hiding out in. When they arrived, the apartment was empty, but they staked out the building, and Bruno, hiding under the name Frank Miller, soon reappeared. He had gained a bit of weight, dyed his hair, grown a mustache, and changed his glasses, but otherwise he appeared much as he did on the one at posters. He was conveyed to Eastern State the next day to join his relatives. After the Brunos entered prison in Philadelphia, the story goes dead for a brief time. The next year, Paul Bruno filed once more for a retrial and won his freedom. The same year, Arthur Bruno was paroled. Tony Orlando was freed in 1939. Alfred and James Bruno in 1942. A few years later, Phil Bruno was released, followed by Joe Bruno himself in 1948. After release, 
Joe returned to his house in Kellairs, but he understandably received quite a chilly reception in town. The feelings were reciprocated by Bruno, who seems to have still borne grudges against many of the people involved in the parade on which he fired. He died in 1951 of a heart attack. The Bruno school that he had built was renamed and is now named the Calair School. Governor George Earl was to serve only one term. Attorney General Charles Margiotti announced his own gubernatorial run in 1938, but swiftly dropped out of the race. The same year was another election in which the Republicans took back most of the offices they had lost in 1934. Arthur James was elected governor, and Guy Bard became attorney general. It is perhaps significant that most of the Brunos didn't gain their freedom until the Republicans regained their offices. For the massive, massive story it was nationally at the time it occurred, the Kellers massacre is almost mind-bogglingly little known today. In today's world, where Democrat and Republican tensions are high, to say the least, it's, it's really almost unbelievable to me this event's not better known. Equally unbelievable that it hasn't happened again. Of course, sadly, one could argue that it has. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram, at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.